Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see you this morning. Uh, last week, we wrapped up our sermon series entitled The Game Plan, and in the midst of all the kid cuteness that was going on on stage, I forgot to uh, make mention that we had a takeaway item for you. It's a refrigerator magnet that really sums up the five focuses that we're concentrating on here as a congregation. And so I want to invite you to pick that up. It's on the back table by the doors back here or the table underneath the sound booth. But we want to encourage everybody to take one magnet per family, place that on your refrigerator or someplace else that you'll see every single day. You'll notice those five focuses of creating an invitation culture, practicing radical hospitality, teaching and training in the ways of Jesus, lovingly serving others, and living on mission 24-7. Remind yourself of these on a daily basis. Pray over these, and let's make sure that we are fulfilling the mission that Christ has called us to, uh, to make disciples. Now, when you wrap up one sermon series, you have to start a new sermon series. Our new sermon series that we're entering into that's going to lead us up to Easter is entitled The Final Week. The focus of this series, as you have probably already guessed, is on the final seven days of Jesus' life. Uh, this was no ordinary week. In fact, this was the most intense week a human being has ever had to experience in their life. Uh, this was a week that was jammed, packed full of difficult questions and heated conversations and countercultural teaching and deep emotions. And most importantly, this is a week that altered the course of world history. Now, for me to describe all that went down in that final week in three Sundays is just not possible. And so I want to encourage you to carve out time between now and Easter to spend time reading Scripture and reflecting upon this part of the Jesus story. One of the benefits of spending time focusing on the final week of Jesus is that we are reminded over and over that Jesus was a human just like us. Now, does that mean that Jesus was no different than us? Oh no, Jesus was very different than us. Jesus was not only a human being, he was also divine. Or at least that's what he claimed. In fact, Jesus would make statements like this to people, John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now please keep in mind that when Jesus made that statement, he was not claiming oneness in the sense of a husband and wife share oneness, but what Jesus was actually saying was this, I am one in the very essence and nature of God. That's a huge claim, isn't it? And it was this particular claim that was one up, if not the primary reason the Jewish authorities said, you know what, this guy, we got to snuff this guy out. He's dangerous. We don't want him to be a part of our society any longer. And so you go on to read in John chapter 10 and verse 31 through 33. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're stoning you for any good. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you're a mere man. You claim to be God. To claim Jesus was a good guy, but not the Son of God, the Scripture just doesn't allow for that. Not only that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Either Jesus was who he claimed to be, divine, or Jesus was cult leader crazy. 
No sane human being sticks to a lie when they understand where this is leading. This is leading to you being executed on the most excruciating execution pieces known to man at that particular time. In this claim of being God, well, that would be a hysterical joke to just outright, outright dismiss if it were not for the fact that Jesus just continued to do God-like things, things that no ordinary human being could possibly pull off. I've tried. I've tried. There have been moments in my life that I have tried to the best of my ability to tell Mother Nature what to do. When I lived in Oklahoma, I would tell Mother Nature, knock it off with the ice storms. And then I moved to Houston, Texas, and I said, Mother Nature, you need to calm down with the humidity. And then I moved to Alabama, and I said, Mother Nature, no more tornadoes. This is nuts. And then I moved to Chicago, and I said, Mother Nature, I am tired of shoveling snow. No more snow. And finally, I just said, I give up. I'm moving to California. <laughs> Where you behave. Well, it's a little chilly this morning, right? And there have been moments in my life in which I've tried to tell my body what to do. I've said, body, you've got aches and pains, and I don't like aches and pains, and so I want this to be gone right now. But it usually takes a handful of Advil in about a week before I feel 100%. You get the point. I, a human being, an ordinary human being just like you, we don't have control over much. But Jesus went through life proving that he had authority over all things. Nature, disease, and demons all listened to him. And when he walked out of the tomb on that Easter Sunday, he showed that he was boss even over death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Do you remember what Thomas said when he looked at the scars on Jesus' resurrected body? He looked at those scars in a moment when he was doubting and saw what was before him, and he proclaimed, the person that's standing before me, he's not an ordinary man. This is God. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, he was 100% human. And as such, being flesh and blood, he had to go through all of the growth stages that every single one of us have to go through. So Jesus didn't come out of the womb wearing big boy pants just because he was the Almighty. He had to be potty trained just like every other child. And even though Jesus had a front row seat in heaven and he was there watching Moses lead the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity, when he showed up in flesh and blood, he still had to sit at the feet of parents and teachers and he had to learn the stories of his people anew. And he had a body just like you and I have, and so that meant he needed food, and he needed water, and he needed rest. 
Before the age of accountability, he had, so, had to have someone teach him, this is right and this is wrong, and this is what God wants you to do, the Father, and this is what he doesn't want you to do. And Jesus had to learn all of these things. I say this to say Jesus had the full human experience. Not just the good, but he had the limiting and the trying and the disappointing and as such, he experienced all of the emotions that you and I experience in life. And if there was ever a week that stirred his emotions deeply, it was the final week of his life. I just want to take you through some scriptures during that week to remind you of this, of some of the deep feelings that he experienced, that you and I experience on a regular basis. The week, this particular final week, it started off with a parade. What a great way to start a week, right? Don't you wish tomorrow would start out with a parade? I mean, with a parade, it brings smiles, big smiles, and brings hearty laughter and joyous celebration, right? It, it, it colorful confetti, and on this day, all those things were for present except maybe the confetti, but instead they had palm branches, and so it's just this great week, and the atmosphere, it's absolutely electric because for the people of Israel, they're pretty sure, they're sure that the centuries held hope that Israel is going to be restored to power, it's about to be fulfilled because the Messiah, the Messiah they'd been waiting on for so long, he was here and he's riding into town victoriously and they're thrilled. And so they're celebrating in this parade and Luke describes it for us, Luke chapter 19, verse 33 through 38, as they were uh, untying the colts, its owners asked them, why are you un uh, untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the, on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. They've seen it. They've seen him control nature. They've seen him control disease. They've seen him cast out demons. He's the Messiah. He's riding in the town. They're praising. They're joyful. Here he comes. It's about to begin. They're so happy. Smiles on everybody's face except for Jesus. He's not smiling. In fact, instead, tears begin to fill his eyes and in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Despite all the praise and all the accolades and all the joy, his heart is breaking as he rides into the city. Why? Because he knew, he knew in the depths of his soul that all these cheers on Sunday are quickly going to turn to jeers. That all these people who are praising his name as the coming king, in just a few days, they're going to cry out for his execution. How did they turn so quickly? Why did they turn so quickly? Here's the major issue. Because they didn't care who Jesus was. They just wanted Jesus to be who they wanted him to be. He was a king. 
like they thought he was a king. But he was a different type of king. He was coming to establish a kingdom that wasn't an earthly kingdom ruled by force. He was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom that would be ruled by love. But they couldn't see it. They didn't want to see it. Because they wanted to tell Jesus who he should be. And it broke Jesus' heart. Not just simply because he faced rejection, which breaks all of our hearts, right? Nobody wants to be rejected. It stirs the emotions deeply. But more so, it broke his heart because he knew this rejection of him would ultimately lead to their judgment. You continue reading in verse 41 through 44. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you, hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word Jerusalem literally means city of peace, but because the people chose to reject Jesus, there would be no peace in this city. This would be a part of God's judgment on them. And it's a powerful reminder that there is no peace for humanity outside of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He is the key to peace for us with one another in a world where economics and ethnicity and politics and gender continually threaten to divide. And most importantly, he is the key to peace between us and the Father God. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh and the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. There is peace for those who accept Christ, but only painful judgment for those who don't. How does that make you feel? Do you feel anything? Is your first thought, well, serves them right? I hope not. I hope not. As followers of Jesus, the very thought of people living out without the peace of Christ, it should fill, fill our eyes with tears as well. This text reminds us that the core of our being should be this deep desire for all people to come to know Jesus Christ, our peace, an everlasting peace. And it's a heart that breaks for the lost that moves a person to sacrifice much for the lost. It moved Jesus to sacrifice his very life. And at the very least, it should move us to pray more, to risk more, and to give more in hopes that more and more people will eventually make the decision to submit their lives to the Prince of Peace. It is what should propel us to live on mission 24-7. Following this parade on Sunday, 
Jesus makes the decision to go to his father's house on Monday. And when he walks into the temple and he sees what's taking place in his father's house, it does more than break his heart. It absolutely infuriates him. Well, what's going on in the temple? Well, in the area that's designated for the Gentiles to worship God, it's just turned into a three-ring circus full of noisy, smelly animals, an oppressive, uh, just unethical business dealings. And not only is it just kind of the worst strip mall environment ever, but there are also people who are using this pathway as a shortcut between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. So what's taking place is the atmosphere is so chaotic that the Gentile people, they don't have a way to really enjoy a meaningful connection with God. So what does Jesus, God in the flesh, do with his fury when he sees all that's going on in his house? Well, he does what most of us would do if we came home and we found a bunch of knucklehead partying teenagers just thrashing our house and disrupting the neighborhood. He puts an end to the nonsense by just running him out of the place. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 and 16, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Now some of us, perhaps many of us, have grown up under the impression that the ultimate goal for a Christian is to be a nice person. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing around you, just be nice. You gotta be nice. And so as a result, this emotion that's stirred in Jesus, when it gets stirred in us, anger, at times it can feel wrong, if not downright sinful. And so we tell ourselves, you know what, I can't, I can't go there. I've got to be I've got to be a, a good person, I've got to be a Christian person, and that means I have to be a nice person, because nice people don't get angry. Yes, they do. The nicest, kindest, most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth got angry. Not kind of angry, but throw tables over, get out of my house angry. Anger's not wrong. In fact, if you're anything like Jesus and you're becoming more like Jesus, you probably find your blood boiling a little more often. And how can it not? Because we live in a society that continues to reject and mock and thwart and hijack God's plans and His will for our lives. And so we find ourselves experiencing these motions, or at least we should. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you got ticked? Now, I, I'm not talking about you got ticked because that, that jerk cut you off in traffic or because that kid got your order wrong at the drive-thru. Now, that's frustrating, though, isn't it? I mean, when you get home and I've got ketchup and onions on my hamburger, that's throat-punching maddening. But that's not what I'm talking about here, all right? 
That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm asking is, when was the last time you got fired up over people being treated unjustly? When was the last time you got a little hot under the collar because you saw unethical business dealings taking place? When was the last time that you just felt outraged because of the misuse of religion? You see, this is the stuff that fired up Jesus, and it should us as well. Righteous anger is good, but what we do with that anger sometimes can be a problem. Because sometimes what we ha- happens is we allow this anger to then move us in the direction of saying or doing things that are just as sinful as what's actually going on that's gotten us upset in the first place. And we must not allow that to happen. We must strive to control rather than be controlled by our anger. And the best way to do that is to refuse to shove it down. And that's what many people do. They just, they just shove it down. They, they bury it deep within themselves, or, or they pretend that, that what's going on is it's not that big a deal. And that's a bad solution. You don't want to go that direction because one of two things is going to happen. Eventually, all that that you've shoved down, it's going to come back up, and it's going to come out in the worst possible way. Or, this is what often happens, you just give up. You give up. And that's what's happened to a lot of good people. There are a lot of good people who have given up, and now those things that just absolutely, they just are objectionable to God, we, we just kind of ignore it. Don't think much about it. Folks, anger shouldn't rule us, but it should fuel us. Our anger should move us in the same way that it did Jesus. It should move us to confront and overturn what is out of line with the will of God. So another question for you this morning. What is it that's going on in your home? What's going on in your workplace? What's going on at your school? What's going on in your neighborhood? What's going on in our community? What's going on here in this church that we need to overturn? What's Jesus calling you specifically to do about it? So you see a lot of strong emotions that Jesus is feeling. But by Thursday night, by Thursday night, those emotions are running particularly high. Jesus is feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. And so he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to have a conversation with God the Father, really more to plead with him. Just say, hey, isn't there another way? Can't we rethink this plan that you've set in place? He's feeling it deeply. And as he prepares to spend that time with the Father, he's got one request of his disciples. And Peter, James, and John, here's what I need from you. In particular, can you guys have my back? Can, can you just have my back while I spend a few moments talking to the Father? Mark chapter 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Easy enough, right? But it proves to be too much. 
Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Just, just one hour, Peter. That's all I ask of you, to, to pay attention, keep watch. Can you imagine how disappointing that was? Well, yeah, you can, you know, because some of you have been let down by friends. You know in that moment how disappointing it is and how heartbreaking it is. And, and Jesus is experiencing this. He's, he's heartbroken, disappointed. But by the third time he finds them sleeping on the job, well, now we've moved from disappointing and heartbreaking to just frustrated, right? And so Jesus comes back in verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? That's enough, fellas. There's a big part of me that wants to tiss-tiss these weak-willed disciples at this moment. But the Holy Spirit won't let me. The Holy Spirit is quick to say, Hey, Smith, before you deal with their speck, why don't you deal with the log in your own eye? Have you been sleeping a little bit? How you doing at making disciples? How are you doing standing up for those who are oppressed? How are you doing about taking care of the marginalized and disenfranchised? How are you doing with loving your enemies? Sean, have you been sleeping on the job? Now, here's the beautiful news of this. Jesus didn't give up on these people. He didn't. He didn't even give up on them when they fled when he was arrested. These were the very same people that Jesus went back to when he walked out of the tomb on Sunday. These are the very same people that Jesus entrusted his kingdom mission to and said, okay, now you guys go make disciples. I still have confidence in you. I still believe in you. I still know you can do this because I know the one who resides in you. And the good news is this morning is he doesn't give up on any of us. In fact, day after day, he continues to invite us back in to making known the way of God in this world. So this morning, maybe he is saying to some of us, hey, enough with the sleeping, time to wake up. I've still got work for you to do. Now let's go do it. And he invites us into that knowing he loves us and he cares about us and he wants the very best for us and he believes in us and that we can still make a huge difference in this world. And it's this. It's this that drives us to do what we've been talking about over the past five weeks to live on mission in such a way that we make disciples who make disciples of other nations because we know how blessed we are by the Savior who gave up everything for us. So as we wrap this up, maybe the best way to describe the final week is by saying it was one of those weeks. You ever had one of those weeks? Of course you have. We all have. In many ways, it feels like the past two years has been an ongoing one of those weeks. And when you're having one of those weeks in which you're disappointed and frustrated and angry and feel let down, and it can feel like in some ways that nobody understands that I'm all alone in this. 
But by looking at the final week of Jesus, we recognize, oh no, 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 there is one who's gone before us who understands all of these emotions that we experience in life. And not only that, he says, come to me with all of your emotions, and I'll lead you to the other side victoriously, just as I did, if you'll fully trust in me. And perhaps that's what you need this morning with the emotions that you've carried into this place that just feel overwhelming to you. You need a moment with Jesus. I want to invite you to spend that moment privately if you prefer, but also know this, that we are here collectively as the body of Christ, that we bring Jesus into this place with us because he dwells inside of us. In some way, we can help bring Jesus into your life this morning through a moment of prayer. We want to do that. You'll find